why are you making a film? It is to see what people think and to have a communal experience once that film is foisted upon the public. Cinephile, the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast. Well, apparently people are not listening enough, and I don't mean all of you for downloading it. I appreciate that. The keyword here is subscribe. I finally started subscribing to my own podcast yesterday. Like, you know, I can't just be throwing this out there. Practice what you preach. So I went ahead and, in a real moment of self-absorption, am now subscribing to my own podcast. That it sounds awfully pathetic, but we got to get the numbers up. But I'm referring to the fact that Open, my man Dan Stanzik, of course, loyal friend and producer, we, we mocked last cinephile just how bad that sounds you're not really sure what i'm saying all you hear is communal and hoisted or foisted i'm not sure we were supposed to update that what happened here i got nothing to tell you we total total error on my part we'll get it for the next one we hope we have a production guy i don't do everything around here no no, i know it feels that way though how do you feel about branding i, I mean maybe this is just because the republican national convention is coming up everyone's locked in but should we start getting cinephile shirts buttons hats like is this I'm, I'm pro swag. You know that. I'm wearing, you know, an old radio shirt right now. A show that doesn't even <laughs> exist anymore. I'll wear whatever we got, but I don't know if we have the budget for yeah, that. Yeah, that's a good point. We have to pass the hat around here. But let us know, people. Tweet us, Adnan ESPN. Uh, let me know if you have a deal on where to get a bunch of – can you get 100 shirts made up for like 20 bucks? Uh, I may have to do this. And then somehow we'll have some giveaway when it comes to Cinephile. Thanks so much for subscribing, listening, downloading, whatever you're doing. We appreciate it. Uh, lots coming up today. Joe Mazzello is the writer, director, one of the stars of a film called Undrafted Baseball Movie. It's in select theaters right now. It's available on VOD as well and on iTunes. So we'll talk to him coming up. Also, with this new Ghostbusters movie, which I'm not going to see, we're going to talk about Bill Murray and the actor spotlight. What are his five best films? I'm telling you right now, it is a controversial list. There's no one in the world who will agree with me on this. So go ahead and get angry at the omissions I make and the films that I praise because Bill Murray is one of my favorite actors. And and listen, I'm not just going to kowtow to the public, okay? I'm not just going to put in What About Bob because everybody else wants me to. So I'll go with that tease right now. How dare Bob? you? What About Bob did not I make I vacation on Lake Winnipesaukee every year. <laughs> I was going to tell you it has to be in there or we're not doing it. I'll pick a new actor. How about this? I'm sailing. I'm sailing. Dreyfus, by the way, is just insufferable in that movie. Roses are red, <laughs> violets are blue. I'm a schizophrenic, and so am I. <laughs> Baby steps to the bus. Baby steps to the parking lot. Uh, we'll also do three words. A little Emmys feel. I like what Stanzik's cooked up. Kevin Spacey, Julia Louis Dreyfus. And that just goes off the rails. Dwayne Johnson, Glenn Close. John Travolta's up for an Emmy for The People versus O.J. Simpson. A brilliant show. Travolta was anything but, and yet he gets the nomination as well. Uh, it's clearly, it's good to be on a good team. Speaking of good teams, The Infiltrator is one of the best pictures of the year so far. People have been discussing, maybe there's been a dearth of, of quality summer films this year. Uh, I raved about The Phenom on the last Cinephile. Gave that four Maple Leafs. Um, I think there's been some good movies. Born to be Blue with Ethan Hawke. That was uh, the first movie, the first great movie of 2016 that I mentioned. But I hear there's no, there's not a, lot, a ton of films that you're going to hang on. This is awesome. But The Infiltrator, I'm happy to say, is one of those movies. And it's a real slow burn. It's kind of like just a slow cooking uh, drug film, which I found the power of the film kind of hit me afterwards. And I always talk about rewatchability. If afterwards I say to myself, would I want to go see this movie again? Or I can't wait till it comes out on DVD again. Then obviously it's a really good movie. And The Infiltrator is that. Brad Furman is the director, and it is about the drug trade of the 1980s and all the cocaine coming from Colombia, how it came to the States and how one guy, our boy, Brian Cranston, uh, plays the drug agent who goes undercover and tries to get the bad guys. So 
the story isn't necessarily original. Like, I've read some reviews that said, well, it's kind of derivative. You know, we've seen this story before about an undercover cop and the danger it happens. But listen, every story has been done. Like, there's so little originality when it comes to films. So I don't find that a negative. I, if, if a film is really well done and crafted and well acted and scintillating, then I don't say, well... Donnie Brasco kind of had the similar terrain. I just go, no, Donnie Brasco was a great film. I love that movie. And The Infiltrator is a great film as well. So that's how I, I classify it. And Brian Cranston, I mean, he's, he's transfixing once again. I mean, he is just, he's just in a role right now, man. I've, I've talked to this before. He, he hit a big at the age of 49 with the role of Breaking Bad. Prior to that, of course, Watley on uh, Seinfeld, uh, very good on Malcolm in the Middle. But I mean, all of a sudden Breaking Bad happens. It changes his life. He wins. A few Emmy Awards as Best Actor. He's probably going to win an Emmy for All the Way, which Stanis and I both love playing LBJ. And he was nominated for an Oscar for Trumbo. Like, it's only a matter of time this guy's going to win everything. And The Infiltrator is a return to his roots here as far as, you know, a drug trade and a crime film. But the essence of Brian Cranston, why he's so good in this movie, because, again, you've seen stories about cops going undercover and trying to get the bad guys. And the, the difference is, and I love Donnie Brasco, Deep Cover is a great film with Lawrence Fishburne, Jeff Goldman from 92, similar terrain. But a lot of these movies, like Johnny Depp and Donnie Brasco is a good example of it. It's always about the cop goes undercover and then he ends up being sympathetic to the bad guys. In his case, to Pacino, who's amazing as Lefty Ruggiero. And, you know, then afterwards his wife says, oh, you're turning into one of them. And the guy kind of becomes the gangster that he's trying to pretend to be. And, you know, it's tough to find his, his loyalties are divided. The beauty of the infiltrator is you have that subplot. Cranston is, is again, he, Benjamin Bratt plays one of the bad guys. And again, he starts to become friendly with him and he has a soft spot for him because naturally he's trying to play his friend. So the emotion comes into it. But the beauty of Cranston is this. He always has this decency. I find he has a fundamental decency to his character. And it's partly why Walter White was so effective because even at his worst, even when he's putting ricin and trying to poison a kid, even when he kills Mike Ehrmantraut, the beauty of Cranston is you go, yeah, but he's a good guy, all right? He's just trying to do it for the family. Even after, and, you know, he doesn't give you that self-realization to the last scene when he tells Skylar, listen, I did it because I was good at it and I enjoyed it. And, like, I just like being a gangster after a while. But up until then, you keep going, no, listen, he's just doing it for the kids. I mean, listen, he doesn't want to do this. He's dying of cancer. And then that, that's the acting. Like, the, the, as good as the writing, the directing was on Breaking Bad, and Vince Gilligan's brilliant. It's Cranston, the way he humanizes him, and you got to go, yeah, he just wants a soft spot. So same thing with The Infiltrator. There's a couple of scenes. Now, I don't think this is a spoiler alert. To me, a spoiler alert is when I'm giving a critical plot twist. But if you don't want to know anything about The Infiltrator, I'll give you three seconds to stop listening. Three, two, one. All right, keep going. So there's a scene where he's got to go. John Leguizamo, by the way, plays one of his buddies. So he tells him, all right, I'll set you up with one of these gangsters, drug lord. They're going to go to a strip club. So they're there, and the buddy says, all right. Let's have some fun. So the girl says to Cranston, she's giving him a lap dance. She goes, all right, he told me to, you know, whatever you want. Let's, let's go have some fun. And again, you see that fundamental decency of Cranston. He's a family man. He's got a wife. He's got a daughter. And he's got to handle it calmly, though, right? They're all kind of set up together. And then she starts to dance a little bit. And he goes, hey, you know what? You're gorgeous, but I'm good. You know, just a very classic way of saying it. And he gets it to go out. And his body is being serviced by the woman. And he kind of looks at me. He's like, oh, is, is everything okay? And Cranston's like, yeah, I'm just going to... uh and they get going, and the buddy's like, well, what What happened? I don't understand. He's like, I just, I uh, I got a fiancé. And the look on the guy's face, the juggler's like, and? Like, what? Like, okay, great. Like, what? Oh, awesome. Good for you. Like, and he's like, I got a fiancé. He just stares at me. He goes, he goes listen, I, I, I messed up my first marriage. I don't want to mess up this one. You know, I got to try to, 
And he kind of laughs like, ah, okay, okay, no, I got it, all good. And the next scene, Leguizamo's torching Cranston. He's like, are you nuts? Like, if you're going to go undercover, you got to do everything these guys do. If they want you to sleep with a stripper, you sleep with a stripper. They want you to do coke with them, you do coke with them. They want you to get drunk with them, get drunk with them. Like, you have to be one of them. It's all about trust. One bad move, one false mistake. They go, now he's not one of us. If he won't cheat on his fiance, that's probably because he's a cop. Because a real criminal has no integrity, will do whatever he wants. He would have sex with this stripper right now. And even later on, Cranston gets that message. This is a great scene. He's there. Oh, it's heartbreaking because he comes home and his wife, his daughter says happy anniversary. And he's like, he's completely clueless. And his wife's all dressed up. He's like, oh, you look great. And clearly he's forgotten that's his wife's anniversary. Cut to the next scene. They're having dinner. Obviously, he's made it up to her. And one of the associates, one of his gangster buddies recognizes him. So immediately he's like, hey, hey, Gonzalo, how are you? And he goes, oh, this must be your lovely fiance. And he has to turn on a dime immediately. This is how quick he has to do it. And he just goes, no, no, this is my secretary. I'm just taking – first off, how humiliating is this to the wife? It's your anniversary. Like, oh, no, it's my secretary. He's like, I'm just taking her out today. He's like, no, my fiance. No, no, she's another woman. He's like, oh, okay, great. Because he, he has to introduce his fiance to these drug lords later on, young, blonde, pretty girl, not this middle-aged woman who is actually his wife frumpy looking lady poor woman she's just staring at him like thanks i'm the secretary he's like yeah yeah a cake gets delivered and the cake says uh happy anniversary so again he's got to turn on it and the guy and he goes hey and it's amazingly cranston goes from like this nice sweet federal agent to like yeah gangster again cocky. he's like hey what's with this cake and the guy's like uh he goes it says happy anniversary it's my secretary's birthday that's why i took her out here it was supposed to say happy birthday and you see the gangster associate kind of watching Cranston, like, what's going on here? And the wife's kind of like, what's going on? What are you doing right now? And the waiter, of course, is perplexed because he's not wrong. He's like, uh, you ordered a happy anniversary. He's like, no, no, I said birthday. He's like, are you calling me a liar? Are you calling me a liar? And all of a sudden, he's raising the anger, the angst. And now the gangster's going to laugh, grabs the guy's face, shoves it in the cake, starts punching the guy. The wife is horrified by her husband's behavior. The associate now is laughing like, ha, he's busting this guy around. And the realization afterwards, like when they're driving home, the wife is just shell-shocked. She's like, I've never seen something so degrading in my life. But he took the message from Leguizamo. He's like, listen, you got to play the role. This is what you got to do. Uh, those are a couple of great scenes from The Infiltrator. I won't give away the rest of it. But uh, go ahead and watch the film. Leguizamo's in it. Benjamin Bratt, terrific cast. Brad Furman's the director. My boy, Brian Cranston. I'll give it four Maple Leafs. Stanzik, have you seen it yet or no? I haven't, but you had me sold at Brian Cranston drug movie. <laughs> I'm in. <laughs> It's going to say, right? Walter White, Breaking Bad. That's all I need to hear. Uh, next one I'll be reviewing is Finding Dory. This feels like a conflict of interest here because, you know, Pixar film. I'm supposed to give it a rave review. But two and a half Maple Leafs. i got to be honest here. They, they've set the bar so high. You think of the great films, right? Monsters, Inc. and Up, which is like just forget about kids' film. That's just a great film. Um, the Incredibles is really good. How is that? Inside Out's an amazing film. Yeah, Inside Out last year, I'm like that was one of the best movies of the year. Forget about the fact it's an animated film. It's so intelligent and funny, and it always has to be appealing both to parents and kids. And Finding Dory, I mean, I get it. Normally, sequels are, are really tough to do, and that's the problem with it. It just feels repetitive. Like I've seen this before. I got it. I love Albert Brooks. You know, he's in the movie, thankfully, and you've got Nemo in there, but. Again, it's just a similar story about a fish and just trying to find her way home. It's a nice message because it's about, you know, she has short-term memory loss. For those who forget Finding Nemo, Dory's the one that just keeps forgetting where she is. Ellen DeGeneres voice of the fish. 
And it's a nice message in that saying, you know, for kids with disabilities, how to overcome them. And, and you know, obviously, that's, that's always the message with these movies. And that's the positive is that there is something beyond just being entertainment. There is something that kids can take away from it. But again, as an animated film, there wasn't nothing outstanding about it. The animation was good. The humor was fine. I probably chuckled a few times. It's a sweet, nice kids movie. But especially in comparison to Film Like Inside Out, I didn't think it was anywhere near as good as that. So I'll give it two and a half Maple Leafs. The third film to review is Undrafted. We're talking to Joe Mazzello. He is the writer, director, and one of the stars. It's coming up next. I don't like to preface by saying, you know, if you're this, you'll like it. But I have to say this. If you like baseball, then I think you'll enjoy the film because I love baseball. But if you are not a sports fan or don't like baseball at all, I, I really don't know why you would enjoy this film or watch this film. It's 95 minutes. And in contrast to The Phenom, which I reviewed last time in Cinephile, which has so little baseball in it, there's maybe a, a minute or two of actual game action. The rest of the time, it's just Ethan Hawke being this abusive father and Giamatti trying to counsel Johnny Simmons, the kid. If you haven't seen The Phenom, go check it out. It's also available on, on VOD and in select theaters. This is the exact opposite. The entire movie's on a baseball field. Like at 25 minutes in, I was like, all right, are they going to go anywhere else? Or is this, this, just, this is it? And they're pretty much in the dugout, like, the whole time. It's just, like, three cameras, and it's, like, nine guys, and they're all chiming in and talking, and... And at first, it's fine because it's funny and it has that uh, element of major league and, you know, that crassness to it. And, you know, baseball, as much as any sport, like these guys just love ragging on each other and goofing around because there's so much downtime in baseball. So, you know, the, the way the film reveals their backstories is just through dialogue and conversation because they're just kind of watching the game unfold. But I thought, while it's an admirable concept, I, I did think it was a flaw of the film because it felt like as I was watching it, they just didn't have enough. You know, it's an indie film, probably just didn't have enough budget to go shoot other scenes and to show where they came to this moment. So it, it violates the critical rule of anything, I think, when it comes to creativity, which is show, don't tell. You know, when a film has too much exposition, when you're saying, oh, this guy came from here and his dad treats him like this and his mom's like this. And remember that game where he did this? That's just not going to work. You have to actually see the scene. You have to see that develop, and then it can become more involving. It's just like with storytelling. You wouldn't write a book and just say, all right, then the guy went up here, then he did this. Like, no, no, you do it in real time, and you, you actually show what happens, and then that's how you build drama. So I thought that was the flaw of the film, that there was just too much uh, exposition. It just was show, don't tell. Now, the, the biggest challenge of movies like this is how good are the baseball scenes. And I'll give them credit because Joe did a good job with getting Tyler Hecklin, who actually played baseball in college. And he's great. Like when he's on the mound, you're like, yeah, this guy can actually play. And it doesn't look fake. And I did think the movie built in its climax. The, the last 20 minutes is, is really well done because it's, it's sentimental. And it's, you know, like most baseball movies, it's going to be about fathers and sons. And, and, and Jim Belushi is a cameo in the movie. I've got to tell this Jim Belushi story. One of my best friends, Hussein Madhavji, we went to college together. He uh, He's now an actor, actually. He's doing great. He's on a show called Saving Hope. It's the number one drama in Canada. He's doing awesome. Hopefully, he'll hit it big in the States one day. But he used to be an entertainment reporter. That was his first job out of college. So he used to do a show called Star Daily. And he's interviewed Beyonce. said she was gorgeous, like really sweet, flirting with her a little bit. Uh, my guy, Philip Seymour Hoffman, said he was awesome. Although he said he was just a mess, like hospital pants, bright orange shirt and you're right now that we know what happened with his life clearly not surprising that he was such a mess slovenly was the best word to describe philip seymour hoffman he said jim i said who is the biggest because everyone always asks that right they go oh when you work at espn who's the biggest jerk who's the guy that nobody likes so of course i'd ask him all these who was the biggest jerk he goes honestly jim belushi <laughs> that's like really what is jim and he goes I asked him, I go, what were you interviewing about? Like, I'm trying to think of the, the era, and I think it was like According to Jim, maybe. Maybe there's another movie that came around that time. 
And Hussein, if you ever met him, stands, he's the nicest, sweetest guy. Like he's, I don't know anybody could ever dislike the guy. And he just asked him, and it was like a relatively innocuous question. And uh, Belushi will have to bleep this out, but he just goes, hey, and like starts flipping his fingers. Like, hey, hey, let's go. Like, I don't have time for this. Like, ask me a real question. And Hussein was like, oh, my God. Like, and I'm trying to think of, of the worst encounter you could ever imagine. Like, let's say Pedro Gomez and Barry Bonds. Barry Bonds wouldn't start calling him names. He might ignore him. He might put his hand up and, like, get out of here. Like, but he wouldn't start, like, literally insulting him face-to-face while continuing the interview. So that does color my impression of Jim Belushi now whenever I see him. Like, oh, Hussein's guy. Such a jerk to him. But Belushi does show up in the movie. He's got a couple of nice scenes. Uh, he was in Mr. Destiny, so there's a bit of a baseball background there, along with being a Chicago guy. So was also the uh, the guy from Mike and Molly. I can't remember his name offhand. Yeah, obviously Mike, not Molly, not Melissa McCarthy. He's in the movie, too. He plays the umpire, so he gets a couple of funny lines in the movie as well. But overall, listen, I'm going to give Undrafted two Maple Leafs. Again, if you're a baseball fan, you might enjoy it, but I think that if, if you're not, you just you really wouldn't be all that into the movie. Actor Showcase. Are you blown away, by the way, by the Jim Belushi story? <laughs> the guy is a total jerk. Of all people, too. Like, if he was a huge A-lister, like, sometimes I'd get it. Like, there are certain athletes. I went up to Carmelo Anthony one time nice, you're to see fan. if he'd do an interview for us for, you know, NBA on ESPN Radio. Yeah. Pre-game. You know, just brushed me aside like I didn't exist. Tried telling him I grew up in Syracuse, huge nickname. Nothing. Just wasn't having it. But he's mellow. He's an A-list NBA player, or maybe he used to be. Right. And, you know, I understood it. But if if someone on that team, if Lance Thomas did that to me, no way. So Jim Belushi, uh, I completely agree with you. If you're a big star, I guess you can get away with it. But him, no. Unacceptable. No bueno. Actor Spotlight. This is a great one you gave me. Bill Murray. The reason why is because the new Ghostbusters movie's out. Somebody tweeted me, what would it take for you to see this movie? And I wrote back 50 bucks. And I'm not kidding. If somebody just walked to me right now and goes, here's 50 bucks. I got a screening. And, and buy the ticket, by the way. I'm not paying for the movie. Give me 50 bucks and a free ticket. I'm like, all right, Kate McKinnon, what do you got? I, listen, I like the original Ghostbusters. I, I mean, I saw it when I was like seven. It's a funny movie. Ectoplasm, Egon, like he had a great cast. It's funny as heck. Stay Puff, Marshmallow Man. Like it's it's definitely one of the great kids' movies. Uh, but I have no reason to see this. And I, I'm getting annoyed by these people who are going, oh, you're sexist. I'm like, no, no, that has nothing to do with anything. Like I don't, I don't give a damn if it's an all-female cast. I just don't think certain movies should be remade. Like if it was an all-male cast, if it was, you know, the guys I like, I like Franco and Seth Rogen and Danny McBride. Like I, I, those guys are really funny. They've got their own troupe together because this is the end I thought was a great comedy. If they remade Ghostbusters, if all of a sudden the Bill Murray roles now James Franco, I still think it would suck. I'm like, no, I have no interest in seeing that. Like, I'll just watch Harold Ramis and Aykroyd and all the rest of the guys. So I'm not watching Ghostbusters. If you want that review, go find it somewhere else. Enough critics are trashing it. You can find that there. Bill Murray, though, his top five movies. God, he's one of the great comic actors of all time. And he's a great dramatic actor as well, which made this list tricky because I had to include some of those as well. But here we go. This is going to be a controversial list. Number five is Scrooged. I think it's one of the great Christmas movies. I know. This is a reach. Number five. Robert Mitchum is one of my favorite actors. Mitchum plays the programming head in the movie. You know who watches more more TV? Dogs. We need to get more dogs involved and more shows for cats. The first half, to me, this is why I love it. Because nobody can play it like Bill Murray. He's just such an unlikable guy. He's just so mean-spirited. The first half of the movie. Like, he's putting, like antlers i think on a mouse at one point like it's it's amazing how funny he is how dark it is the movie at the end becomes a little bit over the top but i, I love scrooge and i know that's still gonna get crushed on it's number five this one i'm also gonna get crushed on number four is quick change 
My dad doesn't watch a lot of movies. He's not a big movie guy. My mom's a big movie person. That's where I got the movie love from. My dad, though, has two movies that he absolutely loves, two comedies. <laughs> the Dream Team with Michael Keaton, which is also great, and Quick Change. He loves like, – I can pop it. Like, Dad, Quick Change is on. I'm like, yeah, all right. Bill Murray, Randy Quaid, Gina Davis, Tony Shalhoub, uh, Stanley Tucci's in it. I think it's hysterical. Ryan Rosillo, my friend, said he thinks I'm crazy because the first half an hour is funny. Murray's dressed up as a clown. He pulls up the bank heist. He goes, after that, like, okay, I got it. And I'm like, no, no, I think Quick Change is a great movie, and I love it. Number four. Number three. Now the list actually becomes sincere. Kingpin. One of the great comedies the last 20 years. And Murray again. Nobody plays the arrogant guy like him. He's so good. That unbelievable come over, big earn. I think it's the Fairley Brothers' best movie. I think it's better than there's something about Mary and, and all the movies that they've done. Like, they've obviously had a dry spell now. I think Kingpin it holds up. What do you else? Like that, that whole movie just makes me start laughing. And Murray really is that quintessential guy that you can love to hate. Number two is Groundhog Day. Again, speaking of great comedies. it's You know, again, this is more, like I said, with Inside Out. This is beyond a great comedy. It's a great movie. Like, I, I watched it again about a year ago. I hadn't seen it in at least a decade. That sequence where he tries to kill himself, like, it's so dark and so funny. And again, only Murray can play that existential guy. He's like, you know, I'm, I'm a god. I'm not the god. And and sometimes with these movies, the relationship can feel hemmed in. But I actually thought it was well done. Him and Andy McDowell, it was genuinely sweet. And just like his self-loathing with it comes to doing the weather, or maybe because I'm on air, I can see elements of myself in that or people that I know like that. He was, It was just so funny and so inventive. And it felt so fresh at the time. Ned Ryerson, Sonny and Sheriff, so good. So here's here's what gets controversial. Hang on a second. You haven't mentioned Ghostbusters yet. You haven't mentioned Caddyshack yet. Guess what? Both those movies not making the top five. Number one is Rushmore. It's one of my favorite movies. Again, Bill Murray should have been nominated for an Oscar. Again, playing a sad sack. I had to have one of his dramatic films in there. I excluded Lost in Translation. So it's a glaring omission of Sofia Coppola. Right now, Stanzik is apoplectic. He's, he might walk off. Your top five Bill Murray movies. You don't have Caddyshack, Stripes, or Lost in Translation. And what about Bob? What about Bob is a great movie. You know what? I'm appalled right now. Let me, let me, utterly appalled. Let me remove Scrooge and put in Ghostbusters. Would that placate you? Because Scrooge... No. The, the, no. Okay, but I'm keeping it in there. <laughs> yeah, this is what... Miss, here's some other... Mad Dog and Glory, which I love. The backstory of that, by the way, he originally was playing like the sweet, shy guy, and De Niro was the gangster. And I can't remember who it was. Richard Price wrote the script. He's a great writer. He wrote Clockers, new show The Night Of on HBO. Richard Price wrote the, the script for that. He's amazing. So somebody, somebody said, let's switch the roles. So Murray actually plays the gangster in that movie, and he's great in Mad Dog and Glory. It's a really you know unusual role for him. I also exclude the Royal Tenenbaums, which this went to your theory because you said, hang on, it's not the movie, it's the role. So the role, Murray's fine in the movie. The movie's incredible, but the movie's fine. Uh, and then, like you said, Lost in Translation, Ghostbusters. I also love St. Vincent. I thought that was a really good movie. Yeah, maybe not top five, but yeah, very controversial. What do you have? Charlie's Angels at six? <laughs> <laughs> Nobody in the world would say the top five Bill Murray movies are Rushmore, Groundhog Day, Kingpin, Quick Change, and Scrooged. Which of those do you find most offensive? Scrooged? Scrooge has no, no let's business watch Scrooged on this again list. right now. No Bobcat Goldthwaite's in the movie, The Ghost of Christmas Past. Which one should be in Lost in Translation? Lost in Translation has to be in the top five. Again, it's it's a it's a quintessential Murray role because who else could play it like that? He has that element of despair and sadness, and yet he's really funny in the movie. The scene where he's giving all those takes with the Japanese commercial was hilarious. How about Rushmore though? Great movie. 
Wait, Rushmore is unbelievable. It's one. It's, of the- yeah, it's, uh, I'm okay with it being in the top five. Number one seems like a stretch, but your list. So, what would your top five be? Well, Caddyshack would have. To, I think most people would say Caddyshack yeah. is his best. Sean McDonough will never. And, and you don't have that even in your top five. Not in the top five. Lost in Translation and Groundhog Day are one and two for me. Okay. Then probably Ghostbusters, Caddyshack, and Stripes. Yeah, that list has a lot more hair. And than what about Bob? Actually, probably five. Yeah, what Stripes, about Bob? You six. have to get it in there. Yeah, so I got to. I got to sneak it in there. Like you snuck Stripes. in Quick Change. Yeah, Quick Change is unbelievable. But that's, that one was for Dad, so that's okay. Actors in three words. Good list here. Stands a little Emmys here feel here for you. By the way, uh, GoldDerby.com. I'm one of the actual prognosticators. I, again, this is very. Uh, self-indulgent but i'm listed as like an expert so there's emmy experts and oscars experts tom o'neill is a big name in the biz if you follow these kinds of things when it comes to tracking awards and one of the guys that works underneath tom actually reached out to me he was like, listen i hear you on the time of the radio because like, you really know your stuff when it comes to entertainment we'd love to include you so i'm actually one of like 20 experts if you want to check it out i have my emmy predictions on there i also guessed the nominations i got about 65 percent right so it was all right but uh, check it out. More than just a movie guy. TV guy now, apparently, as well. GoldDerby.com. Kevin Spacey, I think, is going to win for House of Cards. But more importantly, when it comes to three words, how would you describe him? The first word is cunning. Like, every time you see Kevin Spacey, he's just cunning. You know, the usual suspects. And, and even in Glengarry Glenn Ross, his character seems like he's the lightweight, and yet he's cunning because he ends up getting Jack Lemmon at the end. So cunning is the first one that comes to mind with Kevin Spacey. Seven. Detective! Oh, he didn't know. Uh, the second word, then, is intelligent. I actually think he's a really bright guy. He took over the old Vic Theater, which is in London, England. Uh, it was struggling at the time. It's basically he loves the theater, just like my guy Pacino. So he actually went over there, and he kind of rebuilt that theater scene a little bit in England. Uh, I think he's got versatility in the fact, obviously, he's won two Oscars uh, for American Beauty and the Usual Suspects, but also now big hit with House of Cards and uh, with the, what he's done with his business acumen when it comes to theater. So I think he's intelligent. And the number three word is impersonations. If you haven't done it, Google right now Kevin Spacey impersonations. He can do everywhere. There's one uh, you'll easily find. It. It's from inside the actor's studio. He's done him on Fallon, too. Right. Like, I, I knew he could do, like, Christopher Walken. I've seen him do Pacino to Pacino on, I think it was Letterman. But, like, he, I didn't, this list, he, he's like, do Marlon Brando. Do, like, Henry Fonda. Do, like, uh, like Catherine Hepburn. <laughs> and Spacey's giggling the whole time, but he can do them all. Like, his, his, and I love impressions. Like, I think Kevin Spacey's impressions, there's not much better than that. Next one is Julia Louis-Dreyfus. First word, hilarious. I just read Seinfeldia. I don't know if you're a big Seinfeld guy, Stan. I'm assuming you are. Huge. I was going to say, you have good taste. If anybody's good taste, you're a big Seinfeld fan, as you and I are. I love the show. I mean, it's one of my favorite sitcoms. Uh, The book, by the way, is disappointing. They didn't talk to Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Seinfeld, Larry David, Jason Alexander, or Michael Richards. Like, there's just... There's some quotes for them from when they talked to Premier or Entertainment Weekly or whatever, but it wasn't fresh material, mainly talking to other writers, which, again, I love the writing process, but uh, what do I give a damn what you know Peter Melman felt about the contest? Like, I want to hear Larry David talk about the contest. So skip Seinfeld. Yeah, there's your little book review there. But Julia Dreyfus is hilarious. Like, reading the book again, remind her just how funny she was and how critical she was of Seinfeld's success. Because when they first did it, the, the executives all said, well, it's too many guys and it's, it's just too Jewish. It's too New York. Like, you, you need to mix it up a little bit here. And in fact, one of the guys was like, well, I'm not a Jew, but I think it's pretty funny. And, and Seinfeld's like, I don't think it's that Jewish. And they're like, nah, it feels like a very – even Jason Alexander said after the pilot, he goes, it's the kind of show that, like, unless you're – because if you're in your 20s and you're a New York Jew, you'd love the show. But I think our audience isn't going to be broad enough, which I, I think back now, I never watched Seinfeld, especially those early seasons. That, yeah, this is a very Jewish show. Or unless I'm a Jew, I would get it. 
I mean, obviously Jerry's Jewish, right. Larry David Jewish, but I, I don't know. Maybe just the passage of time, we've been more accepting. I guess. Like they said at the time, the executives were like, no, these guys are just so neurotic. All this kvetching all the time. And they're like, well, yeah, like we're just, you know, it's, it's Larry David. Like I'm, George is me and Jerry's me. And this is our relationship and we're observational. But my point is Elaine was critical because they were like, you need to have some sort of female perspective. And she was so good because they, they kind of try to write her as a guy, which made me think of your Nicholson line from as good as it gets. I think of a man and I take away reason and accountability. The other word is resilient. She's actually had a bunch of bombs. Julia Louis-Dreyfus like, never really had a major film. Um, the Adventures of Old Christine got canceled. There's another show, I think, Becoming Ellie got canceled. Like after Seinfeld, there was the big Seinfeld curse. Remember Kramer had the Michael Richards show? That bombed. And obviously the incident he had where he dropped the N-word in the stand-up comedy. Now his career is forever over. Jason Alexander played Bob Patterson. That movie, uh, that show tanked. So Julia Joyce had a couple of shows didn't do well. And I think when she won for The Adventures of Old Christine, she said in the Emmy speech, like, oh, I don't believe in curses, but take that. Because everyone knew the Seinfeld curse. But now Veep is a hit show. I mean, like, it's, it's very popular. I think she's going to win probably her third Emmy for leading actress. I think she's so. already won four. This would be five. Are you serious? In like, a row. Yeah, like, that's pretty incredible. So hilarious, resilient. The third word is loaded. I didn't realize it in the book. She's like, a, like, she has gazillions, like, Right, like five hundred million dollars from her dad or something. Oh yeah, like her. And, and what's the relation to Richard Dreyfus? Isn't there one? There's something there too. Yeah, <laughs> thankfully not married. Great prep by both of us here. <laughs> but she's loaded. There's a third word there. Uh, Dwayne Johnson. First word is uh, behemoth. You know, most guys like you don't really appreciate. <laughs> this is going to sound awfully weird, but you don't appreciate how good a shape they're in unless they take their shirt off. Like I don't think if Zach Efron, if Zach Efron walked down and go, oh, that guy's going, oh, he just seems in good shape, but like. The Rock, Dwayne Johnson, with his shirt on, like, this guy is loaded. So behemoth is one. Two is smile. It's a big, important trait, I think, in acting. you got to have a good smile. And he, is, he does have a great smile. Like, I think that's a big part of success. He's a big guy with a great smile. And three is one-trick pony. I mean, this is all he's going to do is these action movies. Apparently, he wants to one day run for president of the United States. Like, he thinks he's going to be, like, even bigger than Schwarzenegger. I'm like, hang on a second. You're going to be an action movie star. You should be happy you got ballers on HBO. That's about it. Did you hear that he's the highest paid actor in Hollywood? That can't be true. It's according to Forbes. I didn't make it up. He makes like $30 million a picture. Forbes listed him number one. <laughs> that's, okay. Let's, let's remove one trick pony and just put outrageous because that, that shouldn't be happening. Uh, Glenn Close, uh, because if you've ever seen her earlier work, she is terrifying. So terrifying is the first word. Like, uh, you know, hell hath no fury like a woman scorned, especially Glenn Close. Uh, number two is masculine. I remember she played a woman impersonating a guy in Albert Knobs, and I'm like, yeah, I can see that because she has very masculine features. And the third one is fake name. There's no way her real name is Glenn Close. Have you ever met any woman whose name is Glenn, first of all? No. Like, Glenn Headley's another actress, but I don't – like, hi, I'm Glenn. You're like, no, that's not your name. Like, what is She's that old, for? though, so it could be, like, an old-time thing. Like, there's not a lot of, you know, Margarets around anymore. I guess. But Glenn Close, like, there's no way that's a real name. Definitely not. Like, that's gonna be one of the fakest. But, names but there's a lot of people in Hollywood that have fake names. No, that's definitely true. You're right. It's a, it's a litany of false names. John Wayne, famously, is not John Wayne. <laughs> Larry King, like, like Larry, like Larry King. I'm like, come on, that's not the guy's real. Yeah, name. John Stewart. Right, John Stewart. Very good. Uh, the last one we got is John Travolta. This is my favorite one to do. The first word is sensitive because he, he's such a soft guy. Like every time you see him in interviews, he's with Kelly Preston. He's always like a sweet, sensitive guy. You know, he's always very kind of soft talking and stuff. I think he's a bit of a phony. Is that code? Well, yeah, the, the, there's a little bit of underlying there. He is sensitive. The other one is comeback because it's one of the great comebacks in Hollywood history. I mean, listen, he's in Saturday Night Fever. Um, 
He was in Blowout, Brian De Palma's film, late seventies. But then he was like the voice of the baby, and look who's talking. Like he, it was about as bad as you could get. The fact that Tarantino cast him in Pulp Fiction just brought him roaring back to life. Like he went from there into like Face Off and Broken Arrow, Phenomenon. Like he had all these major movies that were big successes, and he's back again. Like he never should have had that if it wasn't for Tarantino, who just loved him and saw something in him and said, "You know what? That's my Vincent Vega. He's going to be awesome." This movie. They actually played Welcome Back Cotter together, like some video game or board game. I think it was a weird story, but Come Back is the other one, and the third one, of course, my favorite one is Oscars. It's one of the great Oscars moments of all time. The wickedly funny Adele Tazim. Uh, no, it's Adina Menzel. Like, like Marty winning the Oscar, Jack Palance one-arm push-ups, uh, Benini winning an Oscar and, like, jumping on Spielberg's chair, and Travolta screwing up Adina Menzel's name. Like, those are my favorite Oscar moments. The fact that there was, like, a John Travolta name generator after that was amazing. Like, this is what John Travolta would pronounce your name as. I put mine in there, and it came out Ashton Cloyerk. <laughs> and the clip is amazing because he's got that. Smug look at his face. So sweet, George Rolta. The wickedly funny, wonderfully talented Adele Tazim. No, you idiot. Zadina Menzel. He's such a moron. And then, but then the next year when she came out, he like starts touching her face. Oh, my wickedly talented Adina Menzel. Like, God, you're a weirdo, Travolta. <laughs> but thanks for giving us that great Oscars moment. Streaming suggestions. All right, let's fly through these. On Netflix, The Usual Suspects. If you haven't seen it, one of the all-time great endings. I have an old uh, high school English teacher who told me she she knew the ending. I'm like, how could you know who Kaiser Soze was? And she goes, well, I've read enough Agatha Christie. If you've read a lot of Agatha Christie, you always know the, the narrator is unreliable, and therefore I'm like, no, you didn't know that. So just go ahead and rewatch The Usual Suspects. It's so artfully crafted by the, the entire crew. Brian Singer is the director of it. Christopher McQuarrie won the strip. I believe he won the Oscar for screenplay. Spacey, of course, did playing verbal Kent. But the whole cast, Benicio Del Toro, uh, Kevin Pollock, Gabriel Byrne, Pete Possilwith, fantastic cast, and a great crime film. Mystic River is uh, another film currently streaming on Netflix, a really serious, dark film about abuse and um, how friendship is fractured by that. Clint Eastwood is the director. Tim Robbins won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor, playing a guy who's... Uh, Harmed as a kid, uh, he's sexually abused, and then his life is forever, you know, changed, and he's just altered. And there's a relationship between him and Sean Penn, who's like the neighborhood tough guy, and Kevin Bacon, who's the cop. And then a murder happens, and then it obviously involves all three of them. But really artfully done. I mean, there's a scene where Sean Penn finds out that his daughter's dead. It's some of the best acting he's done. And I think Bacon's really good in the movie, understated. Um, and Robbins is just haunting because you can just tell he's just he's, he's paralyzed by what happened to him. And Marcia Gay Harden plays his wife trying to help him through it. There's also a great Lady Macbeth scene, Laura Linney at the end. She basically tells Sean Penn, like, you know, the reason we love you is we know that, you know, you're the king, that you'll do whatever you have to do. It's uh, it's rather chilling when you watch it again. Nightcrawler is another film to watch on Netflix. Uh, came out Jake Gyllenhaal, Riz Ahmed, who's in that show, The Night Of, which I mentioned on HBO. Richard Price wrote the script. He actually plays... Um, a supporting role in Nightcrawler. It really is Jake Gyllenhaal's film, though. Like It was really wildly against type when you see the trailer. You go, what is Jake doing? And I think he's a really good actor, and in the movie, he's great. It's It's got shades of network in the way it kind of shows the way the media sensationalizes crime uh, and tries to just generate ratings off it. Rene Russo is the one who's just kind of just has no scruples whatsoever. Uh, and also, 
I thought it was just it had elements of taxi driver as well because you know he plays this loner who drives at night who's you know searching for something and definitely elements of of Travis Bickle in that. But Nightcrawler I thought was a pretty good film. Dan Gilroy wrote the script, directed it as well, I believe. So that's currently streaming on Netflix. On Redbox, Utopia, good kids film. We love Jason Bateman. Uh, it's definitely better than Finding Dory. So go ahead and watch Utopia with the kids. Creed, I'm not recommending. A, a lot of people said you've got to see it. Rotten Tomatoes had a huge rating. And I thought it was highly overrated. Uh, it was fine. I mean, it's it's a typical boxing picture, but I'm shocked at how many critics loved it. Fans, I get it because if you're a Rocky fan, you just you're so you have this sensational thirst. But I'm shocked how many critics were like, "Yeah, this freshly reinvigorates the genre. It's a really good." Song. I'm like, "No, it's the same story. It just happens to be a black kid." And Stallone is is good in the movie. He's he's he has the pathos that you'd expect of a guy who's played this character so many times. He's got two really good scenes. There's one scene where he talks about his wife and another scene where he gets some bad news. And again, he underplays it really well. For Stallone, again, as an actor, he's actually had better roles than you think. Copland's a great movie. The original Rocky, obviously, is great. Um, so he's, he's better, I think, than people realize. But I was stunned when they were like, oh, Stallone's going to win an Oscar for Creed. I'm like, what? Like, no, no, he shouldn't actually, and I'm glad that he didn't. I, I actually thought it was overrated. It's a very average boxing picture and nothing really all that fresh around it. The Martian is also a film I thought was overrated, was up for best picture. Um, one of the great hilarities is how the Golden Globes has best drama and they have best motion picture, musical, or comedy. And The Martian apparently is a side-splitting comedy because it was nominated for best picture and motion picture and comedy. Like, it's so ridiculous. Like, how, how can these people validate these things? Like, you know what? It has some humor in there, right? He's, he's got a, you know, his own, this is how he fertilized the vegetables and this is how he kind of grew his own crop and they've got some good music, kind of wacky. Like, no, it's not a funny movie. It's not a comedy. So The Martian, I thought it was overrated. I may be suffering from space fatigue. I'll completely admit that because I'm like, all right, gravity, really well done. Well directed. Sandra Bullock, Clooney, I got it. Interstellar, and I like Christopher Nolan, but just too long, too difficult to process, but ambitious. And then you've got the Martian. I'm like, no, I don't know. Now we got to get Matt Damon home now. Like, no more, no more space movies. Like, I'm good. But if you like that stuff, check it out on Redbox. Amazon Prime, Kill Bill 1 and 2. I haven't seen them in a while, so I may have to go back and watch Kill Bill 1 and 2 again. One is more action. If you love kung fu and just that kind of visceral thrill, you'll love that first one. The second one I liked more. It's more Tarantinian, in my opinion, because it's more dialogue. Um, there's some great scenes there with David Carradine and Uma Thurman. The whole cast is good. Michael Madsen, of course, I love. Uh, one of the Tarantino staples, and Snake Eyes, a bad Brian De Palma film. There's a De Palma documentary. Unfortunately, it's not playing in Connecticut. I may have to go to New York to go see it. But it's just him talking about his films, and I think De Palma's a really intriguing director. Um, you know, at his best, he'd be Scarface and The Untouchables and Carrie's were very chilling, terrifying film. Snake Eyes, though, is just one of his bad movies. It's Nicolas Cage, really over-the-top boxing movie. So I would skip that. So of my recommendations for Netflix, I'll recommend Usual Suspects, Mystic River, and Nightcrawler. On Redbox, I'd recommend Zootopia. I would skip Creed and The Martian. And on Amazon Prime, I like Kill Bill 1 and 2. And I would avoid Snake Eyes. A Scorsese Story. I can't remember if I was ever more fired up to watch a movie than Gangs of New York. Because Scorsese, it was his passion project. He'd been talking about it since the late 70s. And Jay Cox, his good friend, had written the script. And they tried to make it in the 80s. He just couldn't get the funding for it. And for some reason, he was obsessed with it. People said, Marty, what do you love so much about this movie? And he's like, well, listen, it's about New York. It's my city. And it's about the origin of the city. And it's about how these cultures became this melting pot and how the city was formed. And he goes, you know, it wasn't formed the way people think it wasn't people arguing about the Constitution and delegating and a bunch of rich windbags. It was 
kind of delivered in the streets. And he wanted to focus on that huge influx of Irish immigrants and how they ended up building New York. But what's amazing about the movie is it ends up becoming an analogy for today because you deal with how people are, are upset with immigration, have issues with immigrants, immigration reform. Because Daniel Day-Lewis, who's incredible in the movie, like it's one of my favorite performances, Bill the Butcher. And he plays the guy who does not want Leonardo DiCaprio, Amsterdam, and all these Irish here. He's like, no, I'm a real American. I'm a nativist. Like, who are these guys from? And it, it deals with a lot of issues you have today. People are upset talking about who are these immigrants or should we be allowing – Syrian immigrants in this country, Mexican immigrants, et cetera. So it's not only a timely film, but, but this was 2002. It was also a very topical film. But Scorsese was always obsessed with it because I've got to make this movie somehow. So Miramax came through. Harvey Weinstein, who's you know very famous producer, very belligerent, very difficult to work with. Him and Marty, two huge egos, two very talented guys, clashed a lot on set. It was a film that had huge problems, a lot of delays. It was supposed to come out on July 4th, 2002. got pushed back because of budgetary concerns. Marty was, again, he's, I love the guy. He's a visionary, but he's got to get it done a certain way. So Dante, uh, Dante Ferretti was the production designer. They're using the Cinecitta Studios in Rome, Federico Fellini, the great Italian auteur. It was his studios where he shot his films. So it was just massively over budget. Um, and it just a lot of shooting delays. And, and Weinstein kept saying, listen, you've got to increase the Cameron Diaz character. Like, Marty, the way you're making this, it's just a really dark, ugly, violent film. Like, no one's going to want to go see this thing. You've got to bring more romance in there, make DiCaprio more likable. And Marty's like, no. And if you watch the film, it's interesting because I, I do think it's flawed. I think it's a flawed masterpiece because I, I love it. But at the same time, when I rewatch it, I forward all the Cameron Diaz scenes. So obviously, if a movie's great, you can't you can't just excommunicate certain scenes you don't care for because then all of a sudden you just edit the film as you're watching it. So when I watch Gangs of New York start to finish, I'd go, oh, it's almost three hours. The Cameron Diaz scenes don't really work. There's some stuff that's a stretch. But again, the Day-Lewis scenes are incredible. The directing's amazing. Like that scene where he discovers that Leo is a traitor and the way he just attacks him is amazing. Like it's, it's virtuoso filmmaking by Scorsese. It's some of the best work he's done. The opening fight scene is amazing. But most of all, it's that third act, the draft riot sequence where they just start to have a revolt. I mean, the camera never stops moving. The action builds, the music from Howard Shore. I mean, it's, it's incredible. So Gangs of New York is a film that I love, and I think about it because I know how much it means to Marty. The, the story element, not just me talking to the movie, on the on the DVD commentary, George Lucas, one of his best friends, he's tight with Lucas and Spielberg and Coppola, he's showing George Lucas the studio. He's like, hey, look, this is where he built this, where he built this, and all right, this is the Chinachita Studios. And at one point, Lucas looks at him and just goes, you know, Marty, I, I, I could have done this all for you. And he's like, what? And he's like, you know, like with, with CGI, like I could have done this like for a fraction of the cost. And it's a great illustration of these two guys who are both great at what they do. But Lucas is seeing all this going, this cost you like $100 million to build all these sets. Like, I could do this for $10 million. And Scorsese, ever the pure, is saying, no, no, I don't, no, I don't, CGI. I have to build it. It has to be the Chinatita Studios. has to be where Fellini did this. It has to look like the 1860s. And, like, it's just an amazing contrast with two great filmmakers. I'll never forget. Marty, I, I could have done this for free. Like, what, what are you doing here? Check out Gangs in New York. I think it's a great film. And joining us now is Joe Mazzello, the writer, director, and one of the stars of Undrafted, clearly a passion project here. Joe, thanks so much for joining us here on Cinephile. The first thing that struck me about this film was the fact that it all takes place in one setting, much like a, a one-act play, except in this case, it's on a baseball diamond. Was that a, a conscious effort from a script perspective, or I know how this can be sometimes with indie films, was that a budgetary concern? 
You know, it was, yeah, it's kind of like 12 Angry Men if it were a baseball comedy. Uh, we th- there, there was a point to it. You know, we thought that um, doing it in one location could kind of separate it and make it kind of kind of a cool um, addition to what we already felt like was a pretty cool story. Um, but it's a challenge to do kind of one-location movies because I feel like they can, you know, get boring pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you have a lot of characters um, who you find very interesting, you have this big ensemble and everybody pops, I think then suddenly when you start to realize, oh, this is almost in real time, this is all happening right in front of us, that it becomes kind of a cool like, talking point about the movie. And so once you can overcome, you know, people's you know worries that oh this might this might get slow um i think then it becomes kind of a cool part of the movie yeah how many days did it take to shoot what was the budget for it because you're right my, my feeling when you're watching you're going okay this probably took a couple days to just all learn their lines instead of a few cameras and away we go how how uh arduous was it you have no idea how complicated it was <laughs> because and and partly because everybody is in every scene you know kind of like the office where kind of everyone's hanging around yeah, if everyone's free for, you know, the four or five weeks it takes to shoot, that, that makes it really easy, but that's, of course, not the way it is. Um, we had Tyler Hecklin uh, in the movie who was on Team Wolf at the time, so he had a big scheduling conflict with uh, MTV. Uh, Aaron Tevate, he was our lead. He had to leave after 12 days to do another movie that he was already signed on to do before ours. Uh, Jim Belushi, he could only come out for four days. Billy Gardell was on Mike and Molly. He could only work on Thursdays, so... We actually had, it, it was very, very challenging, and we had to kind of get this jigsaw puzzle to work to kind of make everybody, to get everybody um, in every scene. And so we were shooting some of these scenes over the course of three or four days. It was, turned out to be a, a big challenge. I wish we had more locations. It would have been a lot easier. <laughs> Talk to me about Jim Belushi, because he's the, the most recognizable name in the cast. As soon as I saw him pop up in the movie, I was like, oh, okay, cool. Obviously, uh, he's done some great comedies over the years. What enticed him about this project? You know, I think that Jim, you know, obviously Jim ha- has, uh, you know, kind of has a little bit of a baseball background. He did Mr. Destiny back in the day. And um, we just felt like, you know, I don't know, like being, you know, me being an Italian family and, uh, you know, he, his role is based on my actual father, who's, you know, an Italian man. I felt like Jim maybe could relate to kind of this father-son relationship, could relate to, um, you know, the baseball elements and, you know, he just read the script, and he, and he just kind of fell in love with it. He thought it was like this really, you know, cool, fun, funny, sweet little movie, and um, he was ready to come on board right away. Talking right now with Joe Mazzello, the writer, director, and one of the stars of Undrafted. I, I The thing that really struck me at the end, and I really think the film builds towards that climax, and you really kind of earn it with that terrific montage at the end. And, you know, it's sentimental, but I always say Sentiment is a good thing. Sometimes people think it's a bad thing, and it depends on the picture. But I think right. if, if if you are going with the storyline, and, and it's about fathers and sons, and you love baseball, then, then the sentiment is well-earned. And even more to that, the climax of the picture, then you've got actual home video, and there's a John Mazzella who is mentioned. Is that your brother, your dad? What's the connection there? Yeah, this movie's about, it's you know, the whole thing's a true story. Um, it's about my brother um, and kind of his experiences as this star college athlete who got really close to getting drafted, but it didn't happen for him, and all of these kind of really zany college teammates that he played with. Um, and so, yeah, it's really cool, you know, and, and, I, and I agree with you. I, I think that melodrama is bad, but sentiment is a good thing, you know, when it's earned. Um, and, and I think it is earned, and at the end you get to see what, what was amazing about the movie and what really wanted me to make it in the first place was that we actually had someone film, or someone happened to film, the climax of this baseball game, the final at-bat on their cell phone. And 
someone gave us that video and I said, wow, this would be a great ending to a movie because you get to see the climax in the movie and then after that you get to see how it happened in real life. And it really can, I think it connects all the dots and, and kind of brings everything home for you. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. And I thought the, the baseball scenes were actually pretty good. I mean, the, the, the always concern I have as a sportscaster who loves movies and is one of the hosts of Baseball Tonight is, you know, a lot of sports films, there's a theory that some would argue that the best sports movies have the least amount of sports. So if you think about, you know, let's say, a, a Raging Bull, there's only, right, exactly, yeah. Raging Bull, there's only like 12 minutes of actual sports scenes in there, you know, Million Dollar Baby. Uh, you know, the whole the essence of the picture is what happens in, in the final act, not necessarily Maggie's ascent. But the, what, the, what was courageous about this was you said, no, like you said, it's 12 angry men. We're just going all baseball the whole time. And so the risk then becomes, I got to make sure that this looks realistic enough. And it's not like you're going pitch by pitch. But the fact that you had Tyler Hecklin, who I just called the celebrity softball game for ESPN in San Diego, the fact that that kid could actually play. And when he's throwing fastballs, that looked legit. How huge was that? I mean, it, it was a godsend. Um, you know, we had him in there, you know, of course, pitching because that was that's who you see the most uh, on the uh, in the whole movie. So we kind of brought in this ringer ourselves um, in Tyler Hecklin. He also happens to be one of the best guys I've ever met and a fantastic actor. So he was kind of a, an amazing triple threat for us um, and really, I think, held it down. And what was really funny is all the other guys, when he was warming up, they didn't want to catch with him. <laughs> because they were worried about how fast he was throwing it in there. So I would end up doing it like, fine, I used to catch my brother. I'll be fine and do it. Um, but, uh, no, Tyler, Tyler's throwing heat. And, man, you know, and, and, you, and you know baseball. Like, after a certain number of pitches, your arm gets tired. I was throwing this guy on the mound every day, probably doing 60, 70 pitches a day. And I'll be like, Tyler, you sure you're okay, buddy? And be like, yeah, 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 it's fine. But then I would see him on the monitor, him, like, moving his arm around and, like, looking like he's in agonizing pain. And then I'd call it, Tyler, you sure you're okay? And he'd be like, yeah, yeah, I'm good, Joe. So he was such a team player. He, he really made the baseball elements really work for us. But I feel like, you know, as much as the movie is about baseball, it's about the in-between moments of baseball. You know, all the time that passes in between all the action and what that's really like to be in that dugout, to have that mentality and to, to kind of feel what it's like to be in these crazy little rec leagues. Uh, and you're right, and Joe, in talking about those in-between moments, like some of the most memorable scenes, like the one time that the, the guy's drumming a beat on the guy's cup. Like this is what <laughs> this is what baseball guys do. Like if, if you haven't been around a clubhouse, the exactly. dugout, like it's it's the most silly, inane things that stand out. And, you know, I, the best cop I can pay the movie is that there were shades of Major League in the movie in that you had that, you know, vulgar, loose humor, which is so critical to the baseball environment. Absolutely. There's so much downtime, you know, that these guys, they get bored and they get silly and they come up with these silly games and silly bets and these crazy conversations that end up coming up that I find actually just so interesting and so funny and like just really kind of something that you don't really see too much of. Yeah, like I felt like I thought about Bull Durham, I thought about Major League, and I wanted to capture those in-between moments that really, I think, you know, kind of bring some color to the team and really um, help you understand who these characters are and why they've spent 15 years obsessing over this game that kind of gives them nothing back. Joe Mazzell, the writer-director, one of the stars of Undrafted. Tell us where you can find the film, Joe. Well, it's in select theaters right now, uh, 20 cities around the country, but you can also get it on iTunes and on uh, almost every VOD platform. All right, perfect. I find that's the better way now to watch these these films, man, because it's like I don't want to go to the multiplex where there's six showings of Ghostbusters. I'd rather see something like right. this film. So uh, good on you for doing something that's clearly a passion project and, and best of success with it. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me.
And once again, thank you so much for listening to Cinephile. My thanks to Joe Mazzello. Sanzik's still upset with me for the Bill Murray actor spotlight. You can tweet me, add Nan ESPN, tell me what an idiot I am. We'll see you next time on Cinephile. And once again, I'll see you at the movies. Don't miss out on the next episode of Cinephile. Subscribe to the Adnan Verk Movie Podcast by clicking the Listen tab in the ESPN app. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.